0: 違うのに is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldren. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and filling in for Jeff Maldren, who we are sending our best wishes to, and we certainly hope he is back hosting this stud cast very soon. Of course, you have found the only podcast on the planet which is telling the real story of professional wrestling, its history, and its inception. The man documenting wrestling's history has lived it his entire life. His grandfather and his father were packing tens of thousands into baseball stadiums and coliseums for wrestling events long before the McMahon name was ever heard of. He is the originator of the Studcast, and he changed the podcasting world with the Super cast. He is the storyteller. Let's step back into the ring and back into time, as it's my honor to welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, Ron? Oh, man. Uh,
1: nice introduction, Dave. I really appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, it's great to be here, as always. I want to say uh, to Jeff, uh, right off the top here, too, uh, we wish you the best, Jeff, in uh, in trying to get past the, the battle that you're in right now. And we look forward to having you back, and uh, and I thank you, Dave, for stepping in today, and uh, we, we've got a good one today. I think uh, we'll get started uh, as soon as we're all set, got the old horse saddled up here and ready to go.
0: Hey, Ron, it always amazes me how you do this week to week, and the detail, everything is there. So anyway, I- I'm with you. Let's get rolling. And where are we headed today, Ron?
1: Well, as I promised everybody last week, we're going to start this one off today with an unforgettable plane ride. And most of them were if you were in Ron Wright's plane. And this one's going into the West Virginia mountains. Uh, And uh, if that isn't exciting enough, we're going to break down the phenomenal growth of southeastern television uh, in the first 10 months that we were on WBIR-TV in Knoxville. Those figures come to us uh, in the quarterly rating books that used to come out years ago by Arbitron and Nielsen. They may be still there, as far as I know. And uh, these were compiled in February of 1976 to gauge how many people were watching Southeastern wrestling during that time frame. Uh, we're going to look then at the Knoxville event in April, the first one, which is on April 2nd. And we're going to talk about the return of uh, one of the stars that got hurt three months earlier in January by one of the superstars. Uh, we're going to close out the today's studcast Obviously, with the learning tree. And this one has several great questions to it. And it's all about enhancement talent how I found the young stars that made Southeastern successful and Continental and the different wrestling shows that we had, and how I trained them, how I hired them, uh, uh, how I kept them. And, uh, you know, and then at the end, we're going to just name, he asked me to name a few of the most famous guys that we basically developed Uh, in time uh, with Southeastern and all those other companies. So it's going to be a very good question at the end that we'll talk about. But uh, if you're ready, Dave, I'm going to jump right in, my man. Uh, We're going to start this week with uh, last week's show on March 22nd, 1976. We opened Bluefield, West Virginia. I kind of explained how we drew and and, uh, what I did to get the town started. But I did not tell you how I got there that night. And uh, this is a pretty, (laughs) it's one of those Ron Wright plane stories that people seem to really like. (laughs) And this one, by golly, is a pretty scary. The others were a little bit fun in some circumstances. This one had no fun to it. And that allowed us to kind of explain what happened on that day. I had an appointment, a business appointment, and I was going to ride to Bluefield, West Virginia, which was almost a four hour drive from Knoxville with Robert my brother, and Jimmy Golden, my cousin. And I got hung up in this business meeting, and they had to leave because it looked like uh, I wasn't going to be able maybe even to make the show. Uh, they got on the phone, and they called Ron Wright. And they asked him if how he was getting there. And he was going to drive too, but then they explained to him my situation. And he said, well, why don't you have him call me, and he can fly with me. I'll fly us up there. And I wasn't expecting that. Uh, I came home from my business appointment. I found uh, a note from Robin Jimmy that said to uh, call Ron Wright, and uh, he might be able to get me there. So I ended up driving from Knoxville up to Kingsport, Tennessee, where Ron Wright lived, and I met him at the little airport there out of Kingsport to fly in his twin-engine plane. I've been on it <laughs> several times before, and I've told those stories. One time to. To Memphis through Florence, Alabama, we went into a uh, front, a big, bad front of weather that we end up having to land a plane and then and restart again and go again. And another time, they want to land the plane on my dad's farm in Bolivar, Kentucky. Uh, so this one, uh, I get on the plane with Ron Wright. It's late in the afternoon. It's a cold day. There's snow on the ground from snow the day before. And we're flying into one of the most mountainous and, I think, most dangerous parts of the American continent when it comes to flying airplanes. I mean, <laughs> you get in trouble in the West Virginia mountains and you don't find an airport too easily. Right. So uh, so uh we take off. It's pretty cloudy, you know, and, and it's cold, obviously, you know, it's still snow on the ground. And we've got about a 45-minute flight, close to an hour flight from Kingsport into Bluefield, West Virginia. The, the the airport sits right on the very top of a mountain. In fact, they take a big bulldozer up there in West Virginia, and they just bulldoze those tops of those mountains off and make them flat and make runways out of them. Right. So so you know, uh, I guess it's better than trying to live, find them in the valley. So you know, I don't know. I don't know uh, why they do it that way exactly, but uh, obviously this one is one of those airports that sits on the top of a mountain. I'd never flown into that airport. Neither had Ron Wright before. So we leave Kingsport, and uh, we're flying for about the first 30 minutes, and it's cloudy, and then uh, it starts to get a little foggy. And that small fog and little fog turns into uh, thick fog, and it's not long until... I look out the window, and I can't see the end of the wing. So, you know, we're pretty much fogged in at this point. We're too far out to turn around and go back and be able to get into the car and even make the show. So we're kind of at a point, we're at the point of no return. Right. So we're basically keep going toward Bluefield. And I asked Ron, you know, I thought he was instrument rated. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I asked him finally, I get the guts enough to ask him cause I really don't know if I want the answer, but I, I say, Ron, are you instrument rated? And, and, you know, and Ron goes, well, Ron, like, you know, I, I've been a- taking them tests. I, I'm a- learning. I got about got it all down. I think, you um, know, and I was like, oh my gosh, man, I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> you know, we can't see the, like I said, the end of the wing we're we're fogged in. And we're in mountains up to in, uh, in the 5,000, 6,000-foot range. And uh, he hands me maps. He starts handing me maps. You know, and it, it appears that now all of a sudden uh, I'm going to have to help him. <laughs> and I'm like, well, Ron, I you know, I, I'm not a pilot, man. I don't know anything. He said, well, you'll you be all right, Ron. Just just help me. You just tell, You ain't going to have to do too much. He hands me the first map. And it's a topography map. And I can see the, you know, that that there's 5,000 and 6,000 and sometimes 7,000 feet mountains uh, between here and there. And, right. it, you know, it's not like the Rockies where there's just one big 1,000-mile-long strand of, of high mountains. This, this is mountains after mountain after mountain. And right. uh, yeah. And I look at the topography, and I see that the height is uh, some of these mountains that we're in the area of is 7,000 feet. And I look over there at our altitude, and we're at five. And I go, I go, uh, Ron, uh, I, I see that there's some 7,000 foot mountains in this area where we are. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the story here? <laughs> we're at 5,000 feet. You know, I'm trying to be nice and I'm trying to stay calm, but, uh, it's, 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 it's not easy. And, uh, his answer was we're in a valley. <laughs> 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 you know wow. i'm like wait a minute now <laughs> how do you know Ron? <laughs> right well we're in a valley we're in a valley so we keep flying so then we get fairly close to the bluefield airport and he passes me a stopwatch and then he passes me a pad to write numbers on and then he calls into the tower and he tells him you know that that he hasn't he's he's almost instrument rated you know but he Hadn't passed the test, and and this is kind of his first time at this, and and uh, you know, but the longer the conversation went, the the worse I felt. Is like, oh my gosh, so I'm gonna die up here in this lane on these mountains. <laughs> so then he finally starts, and and they start trying to bring us in, and he starts with a, you know, and they say take heading such and such, and he'd say for thirty seconds. They say heading such and such for thirty seconds. And he goes, okay, Ron, start to stopwatch now. You know, we're going to take heading 132. And then, I mean, how long? Tell me know when we're at 30 seconds. And then we get to 30 seconds. And they give him another heading. And that's another 30, Ron. And then it just went on and on. And oh, man, yeah. I'm sweating. I'm like, it's not going to happen. We're going to die. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just about to give up on it. And after about 45 minutes, close to an hour, I guess we had to circle maybe once because uh, we missed the airport, and uh, we came back the second time, and when we broke through those clouds and I saw that runway, I was like, oh, my goodness gracious. I was so happy, and, and we were still taxiing down the runway. We hadn't stopped yet, and he says, <laughs> you going to fly back with me, ain't you? And I said, and I said absolutely not. Ryan. I said, not only that is, I don't think I'm ever going to fly with you again, Ryan. You know. Wow. Oh, and he was like, oh, well, it's okay, Ron. I'll, you, I'll get you home, you know. And uh, yeah. I was like, no, no, no. So, so we end up going to the matches, and then we get there late. But we get there in time, at least, uh, at least to wrestle. And uh, <laughs> Jimmy and Rob says, uh, you flying back, man? I said, no, I'm riding with you guys, you know. <laughs> I said, they all going to have to drop me off where I left my car at that airport in Kings- Kingsport on the way home.
0: Was and, there a uh, bathroom in that plane? Oh,
1: there- gosh, man, are you kidding the bathroom? No, it's just a, they had four <laughs> seats in it, two in the front and two behind right. that, and, right. and no bathroom, wow. you know. <laughs> so, you know, it was a it was a bad, bad experience. Uh, he got us there, though, and he got home, obviously. Got home after that one, and, you know, I don't have a whole lot of Ron Wright's plane stories left, but I do have one that I'm – I'm basically saving until about the time that it actually happened, and it may be the best one of all. But uh, <laughs> I really, uh, my experiences with fine with Ron Wright were pretty horrifying on a lot of occasions, but uh, it makes darn good stories. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, Dave, is uh the ratings. It was really important, obviously, for television stations, what kind of audience you had. Uh, they built everything that they do. Just like the radio business in which you're part of, you know, you've got to know how many people you've got listening to your show, and in television's case, you're watching your programs, and then you know how to base your price for your spots in those programs. Yeah, it's critical. For so, and uh, you know, a lot of wrestlers and a lot of wrestling companies around the country never looked at it. Uh, They never thought about it. Most of them didn't know that there were ratings books that Arbitron and Nielsen about four times a year did a rating and they got your numbers of who's watching your show. And it was extremely important. Uh, I'd ask guys sometimes, you know, what what's your share? And they go, what do you mean my share? Share what? You know And I mean? Share of audience on your television program compared to the other station. Well, I don't know. You know, it's like, is that important? They would ask me, is that important? I go, yeah, well, it is. So I had a guy at WBIR, once I changed stations in Knoxville and went to the bigger station, the sales manager was a guy named Lynn Lepper, who was a great guy, got to be very close with him. And every time the ratings book would come in, he would call me. He wanted me to be a part of that. He wanted me to realize the importance of it for the television station because that was important to me, whether I realized it or not, because if those numbers were too small... I'd be looking for another television station. So he called me up. He got the book in March for the month of February, which was the rating period, from the 1st of February to the end of February. Uh, It was the biggest rating period of the four that they do every year because summertime up in the mountains there uh, and in other parts of the country, people are out doing things, especially on Saturday. Saturdays is the weekend, and they they weren't going to stay home and watch television, most of them. So, you know, it was it was critical to have a big numbers on Saturdays, obviously. But in February in that book, you really had needed to have big numbers because most of your audience would be the, the biggest numbers of the year, probably. So he called me up when the book came in and he had done this to me one time before in a previous book at the end of uh, back in 75. And I went in to see it. And he pushed it across the table to me like he had the last time, you know, and he he said, Check that share at uh, 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. I looked at it. I remembered from the period before that it was up there almost to 60%.
0: Wow. And, wow.
1: Yeah, it was. And, you know, that's for four stations in that market. And 60% of every home was watching wrestling. And he was blown away by it. You know, he, and that's why he talked me when he brought me on the first time. He said, this is unbelievable numbers, Ron. He goes, wow, I've never seen anything like this, you know. And so then he, he pushed it across the table to me this time. And, and I was expecting it might be the same. And if it went down, I wasn't going to be too upset by it. I thought it was really good. And obviously, he was very happy with it. And I looked at it, and this time we were at 70. We had gone up 12 points on share which was like now we were really, really kicking butt. And, you know, I I, I didn't really understand the significance of it until I asked him. I said, well, Lynn, when we started with you, uh, obviously we had small ratings uh, because they hadn't had wrestling on WBIR ever before, and it was really a big thing. But it took a while for me to build an audience. And I said, uh, how much did you sell the spots for when we started 10 months ago? This was 10 months after the very first show that we did in May of 1975. Until he says, uh, we used to charge $50 a spot. And I said, well, what do you charge now? And he says, we charge 150 now. <laughs> you now. And I was like, I thought that would seem better. But he says, after seeing those numbers, we're going to charge 200 I couldn't really picture what what the cost of normal spots were, so I kept digging. You know, I couldn't understand a lot of figures in the book, and I said, you know, well, how's everybody else do on a Saturday? And he said, uh, "You beat football, college football, Ron, because you you have the biggest audience on Saturdays from the time this television station signs on until prime time. Nobody watches anything near as many." homes do we get as wrestling does? And, uh, you know, that really, really made me feel good. Not only made me feel good, it made him feel great. I mean, he was really, really high on the show anyway. And uh, it just made me understand how important these numbers were and how good we were doing. Uh, We were the biggest show on Saturdays, any station, anywhere in the state of Tennessee from sign on to primetime. Uh, even Nashville, Memphis, we were we were beating their numbers there. So it was really a big feather in the
0: cap, and and I was darn glad to hear it. That is incredible, Ron. So where do we go next?
1: Well, let's get to the card for Friday, April 2nd, 1976. That's almost exactly 44 years to the day from the day we're releasing this studcast. Uh, it was into High Park. It was scheduled to be inside or outside. It was the second Friday night card of the year. We were going to be on Fridays from then until the following winter time. And with all those events in Chilhowee Park, because it had an inside building and a huge outside amphitheater, we always went into the amphitheater when we could. But if it rained or, you know, for whatever reason, we couldn't get in the amphitheater and we would move inside. This one Uh, was the first one that was either going to be inside or outside. We advertised it on television and in the newspaper that way. And luckily, we end up in the amphitheater for this one. So the opening match uh, on that Friday night is a return of uh, Mike Stallings, who was a great little star, man. Uh, And he, he was off to a tremendous start for me. And he got hurt in a match with the superstar in early January of 76, three months earlier. He'd been out. He hurt his back, and he hadn't wrestled for three months. And he's back on this card, and he's uh, he's the cousin of Jerry Stubbs out of Atlanta, Mr. Olympia, to, and a darn good wrestler and a great athlete, actually. He had a professional baseball contract, too. So he's on that card, and he's against Jerry Myatt in the opening match. And then uh, in the second match, Ron Wright's in a return match against Tor Tanaka. Tanaka's managed by Homer O'Dell, obviously, and and Homer had gotten involved in the match they had the Friday before, and he cost Tanaka a victory. So uh, they're having a rematch again, Ron Wright and uh, Tanaka. Butch Malone's in another match that gave him the opportunity they had in the last one. If he beat Norvell in the last match, the Friday before, in 15 minutes, he got five minutes along with Homer. Well, he didn't beat him in the 15, but he was very close and this time they pushed it to 20 minutes. And if he could beat him in 20 minutes, he got five minutes with Homer. So that's the specifications of that match. And, uh, you know, he was really close to beating him last time. And he really had a great chance of getting his hands on Homer with this one. Uh, and because the tag match with the superstars from the Friday before ended up with all three of the guys fighting in the ring for most of the match, it was out of control. In fact, I don't think the referee ever got them actually into the corners and got it into a regular tag match situation, and they stopped that match. Well, this one, Friday night, April 2nd, is going to be a Texas Tornado tag match. It's going to leave all four of them in the ring, but the superstars aren't going to put their belts up under that situation. So it's not for the title, but it's all four men in the ring the following Friday night. And although I wasn't even on the card the week before, I got involved in the Mid American Championship match between Dickie Steinborn, who was the Mid American Champion, and Don Carson. Uh, they're wrestling for Steinborn's belt, and I went to the matches, and I had seen what Carson and the Superstars did the television before, and I told them that I was going to be up there and I was going to be watching the match, and I was going to make sure that they weren't going to cheat for each other. So I ended up getting involved in this match and ended up getting a steinborn disqualified but that kept carson from winning the title carson had hit him with the glove i saw it i went down i jumped in the ring referee disqualified steinborn raised carson's hand but carson couldn't win steinborn's mid-american belt so i end up then going back we're going to be wrestling for the championship uh, again you know and this time there's going to be a special referee in the And the special referee is going to be Dick Steinborn, the guy that he had actually beat the week before, but he didn't get his title. So let's talk about the TV show, which is a very interesting and unusual one that takes place before this card, which is about uh, six days before this Friday night on Saturday, the 27th of March. Carson and his superstars had been banned from TV because of what happened the week before. And, uh, everybody, if you listen to the last studcast, you'll hear all of the things that they did that day. They destroyed trophy. They did all kinds of stuff. So they, in essence, were barred from being live on the television show for this TV, Carson and the superstars. Uh, they had to replace the TV trophy that Carson had destroyed. They were, uh, $10,000 each wow. and uh, not allowed to be live on the show. So, um. Uh, we, we put them on the program, but we pre recorded it in the uh, personality profile slot uh, when there was nobody in the studio except them and Les. So, first match on that TV is Norvell Austin, managed by Homer Odell, and he's wrestling against Rocky Smith, the former Inferno grade wrestler. This was a super match, as good as any television wrestling match in the world, probably. Uh, Norvell wasn't just a great heel But he had a great wrestling ability about him, and he proved that working with uh, Rocky Smith because they both went on the mat, and they spent a great portion of that match on the mat. They filled that match with takedowns and switches and reversals of holes, and Southeastern fans, they're beginning finally to really appreciate real wrestling, and they got into this match. Uh, Homer didn't, however. Homer didn't like it. (laughs) It wasn't his style, and it wasn't what he wanted Novell to do. So he kept having Norvell get out of the ring and come over to him, and he was just berating him, man. I mean, he was screaming at him, you know, what are you trying to do, wrestle? Don't, wrestle. go in there and kill him. You know, he <laughs> wanted him to just go do his thing, yeah. the thing that that Homer wanted done, but obviously not what Norvell really wanted to do. So finally, Homer Homer convinced him what he needed to do, and Novell opened up on him, and he... uh he beat Rocky Smith with his flying headbutt, and uh, and it really looked good on the instant replay. Obviously, they went to the set, and they were joined by Tor Tanaka. Uh, Homer watched the end of that fifteen-minute time limit match, the the uh, Friday night before, in which Malone was really close to beating Norvell and getting that five minutes within. And Homer just kept reprimanding Austin about during the video about uh, being so close to losing so many times. You know, I mean. He was risking he was risking Homer's butt, and uh, Homer didn't like it. So they stayed at the set after this, watching the video, and they actually were in the first interview. And this gave Homer a chance to talk about the specific matches for the next Friday. He wasn't having a good day. Homer wasn't happy. It didn't seem like a day. He got real worked up about Tadaka not destroying Ron Wright the night before and uh, having to come back and finish the job, being booked back with the same guy next week, and he should have killed him last week, basically. <laughs> and that, that was kind of Homer's uh, Homer's point of view as far as his wrestlers were concerned. So at one point, he got really outrageous and he stood up uh, and he got in Tanaka's face and he started yelling at Tanaka and then he pushed Tanaka and uh, Tanaka's face got blood red <laughs> and he made a move toward Homer and Boy, when that happened, the studio crowd, they reacted. I mean, they went crazy, like, oh yeah, Tanaka get him, you know. And the, so Homer sat down fast and we, we went back to Norvell again. <laughs> like, well, sorry, right, never mind. <laughs> you know, one of those deals. And he ended up telling Austin, it really didn't matter whether Malone beat you or not, anyway, to be honest with you, because he, Homer explained to Norvell that I'm tougher than you and and Malone anyway, and uh, if he gets in the ring with me, I'm just going to hurt him, so, hey, you know, and then Homer ended up, <laughs> so when, by the time he, had, he'd, he'd pushed Tanaka, and then he insulted Norvell, and after he insulted Norvell, Norvell got up, and him and Tanaka left the set, and left Homer sitting there by himself with Les, and Homer ended up bragging about himself, and how he didn't need anybody to fight his battles, and the, Studio crowd, I think they really loved watching Homer mishandle his stars. They could see maybe he was about to have the same situation maybe that he had had with Malone. And uh, then the returning Mike Stallings had his match in the second match against Jerry Myatt. And Les really put uh, Stallings over, which he should have. He was a great kid and, uh, and had tremendous ability. And we were going to give him a push in the future. I mean, he, he was the guy that uh, deserved it. Ron Wright and Butch Malone took the second interview of the show after that Stallings match, and uh, they focused on Homer. and They asked Les what he thought about the day Homer was having. <laughs> you know, they they kind of had a good time out there. They said, you know, uh, Homer ain't having a very good day, is he? You know, and uh, and then uh, you know they asked, was there some problems you think between Homer and his men? You know, what's going on here? and And they discussed what had happened in that first interview of the show. and Les told Malone. He was looking forward to Malone's upcoming match, which was going to be on the end of this show. So up was the next personality profile with the, I'm going to call them the three amigos, Don Carson, uh, Dick Dunn, and Leon Baxter, the superstars. They weren't allowed to be on live. So we put them on this profile and they had to do it earlier. And they started, you know, it's the same guys that had the big problems on the TV last week that ended up getting fined. they, and uh, they weren't able to wrestle live because of all the stuff they had pulled the week before. And the last week, uh, they'd had a personality profile was totally different than this one. They were live last week. They were jubilant, man, and celebrating all their accomplishments. They were all champions. Carson was the Southeastern champion. They were the Southeastern tag champions. And they were drinking champagne. And I mean, you know, it was... It was just like Les was going nuts. He hated it. But this profile was totally different. Only Les and the three of them were in the studio at all. They was quiet in there. Les invited him to have a seat like he'd done the week before, and they declined again like they had done the week before. And uh, the week before, it had been all laughs. But this time, uh, uh, they were mad. They were mad at Les, and they were mad at everybody else in Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, they started by asking Les just exactly, what they did wrong last week. You know, like, can't imagine why y'all they find us $10,000 each. So Les was prepared for it. And so when they, they hit him with that, he showed this video that he had probably spent an hour putting together. It started off with them drinking champagne while they were on and celebrating while they were on the profile. And then they showed the unprovoked attack against Ron Wright before the TV championship match even started. It showed Carson smashing the television trophy on the floor, and it showed them being chased out of the studio. Then it showed them come back on the end of the show and being informed of what the repercussions for what they had done for that day were. You know, So they didn't say a word as the video played. I mean, the silence was just deafening. There's only four people in the studio other than the camera guys, and they didn't say anything. And when the video ended, uh, Lest asked them if they wanted to apologize. Right. And, uh, you know, Don Carson, uh, you're, you're from that uh, part of the country where Don Carson and Dick Dunn and Leon Baxter worked for many, many years. And all three of them just laughed at him. Like, <laughs> like what do you apologize? You know, so, so, uh, you know, <laughs> saying that they'd do the whole damn thing again, if we had the chance. Right. And they, <laughs> and then they, they just took over from there. They started berating the last man about uh, being an unbiased commentator. And how every other wrestling show in the world had unbiased commentator, but he was a he was a good guy wrestler and he was a good guy commentator. And then <laughs> right. why he didn't like us? You know, this isn't right. It's not like it should be for a wrestling show. And they complained about not being allowed to be on the show live today. What's the story? We're the best they got, and they won't even put us on the show today. And and they <laughs> laughed about breaking the TV trophy into pieces. And they then they got to the screaming about uh, being fined, $10,000. Who came up with that kind of fine? You know, it's absolutely outrageous. So less then, very quietly, he asked them if they were prepared to replace the trophy and pay their fines as they'd been ordered by Southeastern Wrestling to do on this profile. So one of the superstars, he stepped off the stage. I think it was Dick Dunn stepped off the stage uh, where they were, and he came back on. Brought this big, beautiful trophy. Maybe it was even bigger than the original TV trophy that got destroyed the week before. And they all three, without saying anything, opened their wallets and they took out checks and presented them to the list. And he checked the amounts on them all three of them to see that they were for ten thousand. <laughs> and then, and then he thanked them, you know, and he tried to be nice about it. And then he started in the profile. Well, obviously, man, that wasn't enough. You know, Don stopped him. He said, no, he, we're not finished yet. <laughs> you know, so he started into Les. He said, we want to know what role you played in all of this, Les, and uh, are you the official of Southeastern that demanded that we appear on this profile, and then we pay a $10,000 fine, you know, and then they, they asked, why he allowed me to get involved in both of their matches the night before, and, uh, and I didn't get any fine. Well, why was that? I didn't have a fi- problem, you know, and then Carson asked Les, who decided to make him defend his Southeastern title against me and then allow the guy that he beat the night before, Dick Steinborn, to be the referee for the title defense. You know, <laughs> so, so they demanded well, what was going on. You know, They want to know what's going on here behind closed doors at Southeastern. Who runs this company? So Les got mad. <laughs> he didn't. You know, it was his show kind of less felt like that, especially personality profile. And now they're really getting on him, man. You know, and he said, you know, very nicely. He could understand him being angry. That was a heavy punishment dished out to him by Southeastern. But he he said, and I think he used the word damn too. He said, but I didn't have a damn thing to do with it. He goes, you know, he said, I'm just a commentator on the show and, and I'm an occasional wrestler at events locally here. You know, just the same as you guys are. And he was doing his job, he said, to the best of his ability. And he didn't want to be questioned by the three of them again like this. You know, he was upset. It was pretty obvious. They surrounded him. They they just got all all three sides of him and looking down on him. And it was pretty intimidating. So then they finally threatened just to whip his ass. And, (laughs) And he got really mad at that point, you know. And he told them he never wanted to ever even... Talk to them on this program anymore. He wouldn't ever interview him again as long as they were on this show, and uh and he unclipped his lapel microphone. He was the only one that had a lapel microphone, and he dropped it on the floor. He almost threw it on the floor, and he left the set, and they they left the three of them standing there. So they laughed. They had handheld mics, and they just stayed there, you know. And they went on with the profile. They said, uh, you know, they promised that this was just the beginning. By golly that we're going to drive people crazy here from now on in Southeastern. That we're not only going to rule this show, but every live event, everywhere Southeastern goes, they threaten me, they threaten Robert, they threaten Jimmy, they threaten Ron Wright, Butch Malone, every baby face in the territory. And any of the opponents that were booked against them, they better watch out for themselves. And from here on, for them This was war. They declared war against Southeastern, the company they're working for. So then they took their expensive microphones and they just threw them on the concrete. Boom, they snapped and they popped and and the the director was like, oh, Ron, what are they doing? And then later on, the profiles pre-recorded, they played it back in the studio. They played it live before the studio audience. It was hours later. And the fans were into it i mean it, they boot them just like they were there live like they could hear them you know right. it was in my opinion one of the best profiles
0: in the history of southeastern that is incredible ron this is probably a good place for a break we'll be back with more on this studcast coming up Part two of the tremendous three hour plus Super Studcast number 27 is again joined by the legendary Jerry Briscoe. It takes up where part one left off and is quite possibly the best Super Studcast yet. These two brothers of Native American birth have a unique history in one of America's most unique sports, professional wrestling. At tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This fantastic ride into the lives of the success of the Briscoes, one a former NWA World Champion, and And the other's career still going from territory days to the present day WWE. This Superstudcast goes deep into what the sport is all about. Wrestling fans worldwide will talk about this one for years. Jerry Briscoe finishes part two with the same honesty and openness that fascinated everyone in part one. You may never hear more true old school history than in the three plus hours recorded here. At TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. Saddle up for this one of a kind history making podcast. Hey, we're back on another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, the storyteller of the history of professional wrestling. Ron, Super Studcast number twenty seven is coming very soon. What do you What do you have to say about this one? This is going to be really interesting. Yeah,
1: we actually now have done the second part. Uh, Jerry Briscoe was nice enough to come back and do the second half with me, and uh, it was awesome. I'm, you know, and the comments from around the world are just truly amazing. I don't think probably in in all the studcasts that I have done, the these three hour super stud uh, and this one is more than three hours. That the type of information was. That was given in this one. This is just a marvelous program. If you've never listened to one, I highly recommend you listen to this one. Jerry Briscoe is just absolutely amazing with his knowledge of the sport. And obviously a lot of discussion is about one of the greatest pure wrestlers of all time, his brother and former NWA world champion, Jack Briscoe. It's a heck of a super stud cast.
0: All right. One not to miss super stud number 27. Find out more at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only two ninety right, so you've done an amazing job documenting all of these personality profiles, the TV shows, everything that involves all of that happening, these extremely highly rated TV shows. What was next on the TV show?
1: We're going to the third match in this program. It's going to be me against Bill Dundee. Bill Dundee is from Australia, recognizable wrestler nationwide around the world. And uh, I'd worked with him quite a few times in Memphis and Louisville in 1974 and 75. And uh, he attacked me at the beginning of the match because he's smaller than I am. I give him that. You know, I'm probably a foot taller than Bill was and uh, weighed quite a bit more. And I don't blame him for trying to get a little advantage. And he was a great little heel, uh, and he got me good from behind, and he got up some good heat. Uh, he even got a couple of near pins on me. Then he went for an elbow drop off the top rope, and I moved, and and uh, from there on, uh, Bill didn't get much, you know. And I took care of him pretty quick, and I beat him with a fuller leg lock. But he he looked good during the match, and, and that that made my win even more impressive. The fact that he looked good, and it i it made him more valuable to me as a guy that works on TV occasionally for me because he was good and people could see that he was a very competitive wrestler. So uh, Robert and Jimmy, they've joined me at the set after the match. And we began with the apologies to Les about what he had endured in that personality profile that had just finished showing at this point. Then we'll watch the end of their Southeastern tag match uh, with the superstars from the night before. And the video started by showing me Coming up behind Don Carson, who had gone down to get involved in the match, and uh, loaded up his glove and was about to pop Jimmy and and beat them, Jimmy and Rob, the same way they had beat him the week before, and I went down and and nailed uh, Carson from behind, and and uh, then all hell broke loose, and Robert and Jimmy, um, uh, you know, they just turned into it was no longer a tag match; it was just a brawl, and uh, so that's why they was coming back in the. It was, it was perfect for a Texas-tornated match because it put all four men in the ring for the entire match. After the commercial, of the three of us still there sitting at the set, we did the interview for the following Friday night's matches. And they covered the fact that they badly needed another win against the superstars. They had only beaten the superstars one time. They did that in the tournament to win the championship, but they hadn't beat them since. And uh they really needed to win because they, they had to have it to get another championship match. So this Texas tag match, it was really important to them. And they hadn't beaten them since March. They hadn't beaten them in a month. So Les and I then discussed Carson's claim on the profile that Les had something to do with Dick Steinborn being the referee in the Southeastern tag match between me and Don Carson. And uh, Les was upset with all three of them. He was still mad about the whole deal. And uh, I reminded him what they had done the previous show to deserve what they got. You know, he knew they had it coming, you know, and the whole thing. And and I told Les that, you know, it's ridiculous for Carson to make a claim that uh, Steinborn would be on my side. You know, I told Les that none of us knew Dick Steinborn well enough to have any idea of uh, what he might do in referee in a championship match. All anyone knew about Steinborn was that he was totally unpredictable. I was just as concerned, I told Les, as Carson is about what the hell Dick Steinborn's going to do refereeing in this championship match. And uh, I was being very honest about it uh, because Steinborn was an unpredictable guy. And uh, nobody had any idea what way he was liable to go in this match. So, Southeastern, we were in a very, very good position, man, for heels in a territory at this point. I basically had these two heel partnerships. I had Carson and the superstars. And then I had another group of guys with Homer and Tanaka and Norvell Austin and Carson and his, his buddies, his amigos. They obviously had tremendous heat, but I needed as a booker, I needed to be careful. I didn't want to overlook my other combination. You know, if, if the superstars and Carson got too hot, and I let Austin and them fade back and Homer fade back, I would lose the ability of drawing these money we were drawing because we had these two great combinations. And then Les and I always, we had had a great friendship since I met him in 1970 when I came to Russell in Tampa, and he was in that crew. We'd always been friends. And we sometimes disagreed a bit, a bit, a bit especially about television programming. You know, he didn't want too much heat on television, and I believed that heat was necessary on heels in order to, to draw money. Yep. So it got to where I wouldn't give him anything but the basic format every Saturday, and uh, and I wouldn't discuss with him what's going to happen during the course of the show because <laughs> I found it made better programming. If I got a, If I put together a card and I had ideas of what's going to happen, And I sat down with him and he goes, no, 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 Ron. No, you don't want to do that. You know, then. uh, So I didn't want to go there anymore. So I just started handing him on Saturdays. Here's the format. It showed the matches, the videos that's going to follow, who's on the interviews. But we didn't discuss what's going to happen. So that's what I did that day. And I thought it made the television better. It made it more spontaneous because of, when not only the fans didn't know what was going to happen, neither did the commentator know what's going to happen. Yeah, so a genuine, uh, a
0: genuine reaction from Les.
1: Yeah, that's what you're getting. You're getting his uh, astonishment and shock, just like a fan. Like, right. oh, what in the heck? You know, so <laughs> so uh, this is one of those shows. It, it happens to be one of the first times I did it, as a matter of fact. And uh, so the last match, and the reason I'm telling this, is because the last match on this show on Saturday, March the 27th, was Big Butch Malone against Tony Peters, who was a big guy out of Kingsport. They'd been trained by Ron Wright. They both weighed about 300 pounds each. They were a big guy. Uh, Homer O'Dell, uh, Norvell Austin, and Tor Tanaka, they came to the set uninvited, without Les knowing they were coming to watch the match. So, you know, I'm up in the control room, and Les is like, what are you guys doing here? They just ignored him. They just went on, talked about the match, and, you know, they just act like, hey, we don't care what you have to say. Uh, but Les, is, he's starting, I'm sure, at this point to go, what's going on? So Malone gave a, a brief wrestling lesson to Tony Peters. And then Tony Peters, obviously, he didn't know how to wrestle much, so he started dealing. And Malone ended up making a big comeback on him. And then, boy, it was really huge. It was impressive. He, he, he hoisted that 300-pound Tony Peters up over his shoulder. He ran all the way across the ring and rammed him into the turnbuckles upside down. And then he didn't even drop him or anything. He just turned around and ran back across the ring and uh, dived in the air and landed on top of him with the old Oklahoma Stampede. I mean, it was 600 pounds of weight hitting the ring. It sounded like the ring exploded. And the crowd did explode. They were like, wow, (laughs) did you see that? So, it was quite a feat for any wrestler. I, I was pretty much amazed by it. And then the ref counted Peters out, naturally. And Homer, who's sitting there kind of with with Norvell uh, and uh, and Tor Tanaka and Les at the set, as soon as the ref starts to raise Malone's hand, Homer screams to Norvell, get him! <laughs> so, <laughs> Norvell charged, man. I mean, and he was quick. Norvell was really quick. And he shot under those ropes, and the referee's raising Malone's hand, and uh, Les sees him leave the desk, and he screams, No! <laughs> no! We, we had this last week! You know, like, no! And, uh, but it's too late. So Norvell's shot under the ring, and uh, the referee's raising Malone's hand, and Norvell smacks him in the gut, and grabs the headlock, and starts to pound him in the head. Homer follows him right to the ring. Homer jumps up on the apron. And Butch shoots so Norvell off opposite on the opposite side of the ring from where Homer is. And and Norvell just comes blasting off that rope to hit hit, hit Butch with a tackle. And Butch drops down. And Norvell went across the ring and hit Homer, who was standing on the apron below the waist. And it sent him flying over the top rope into the ring. I mean, the fat band flew. Then he landed in the ring by himself because Norvell went on out into the studio floor there's homer in the ring with butch malone by himself the crowd went nuts man the, the you know as <laughs> homer started looking for a place to run and then malone scooped up homer he's going to do the same thing to him that he had done to peters but boy the big old massive oriental tanaka he showed up man and uh and i mean he hit poor malone in the forehead with a chop that the you know, he was Tanaka was breaking those concrete blocks and all that stuff. I mean, the blood flew across the ring. It was like, wow, man. He he really opened him up, and uh, Malone crumpled. He went straight down Homer on top of him, and then all three of them started putting the boots to Malone, and Malone was bleeding real big time. <laughs> and Les is over there on the set, and he goes, he goes, oh no, not again. <laughs> <Right>? He's been, <laughs> We just had to deal with this last week with the superstars and and Carson, and I couldn't help but laugh. I'm sitting up in this control room, and Ron Wright, he hits the ring before they could do too much damage to Malone, and Homer and uh, Austin and and Tanaka, they all slid out on the floor, and the show ended pretty much as the same as the week before where we'd had that big, huge fight in the last match of the show, and uh, each of these two Hill Partnerships uh, were now competing for the Heat, and uh, that's where I wanted it to be. You know, the fans were going crazy as they'd been the week before. I mean, it was an exciting end to the program just like the week before. The only person that was upset about the whole thing was Les. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> he didn't want to, you know, like, oh, God, I can't believe this. You know, so so Rob and Jimmy and I, we, we took a towel out the to Butch who was bleeding pretty bad, and the four of us went to the set. And it was a two-minute break. Uh, you know, we kind of got Malone's head stopped a little bit, long enough to get him over to the set. And uh, the break was over, and the studio was going wild. Uh, they didn't they, they never shut up. And Malone had his quick say about Austin and Homer while he was wiping the blood away from his face as he was talking. And then he got up and left the set. And Ron Wright came in, and Ron Wright took off on the Oriental Monster. He was wrestling the next Friday. Promising to give him one of more Tennessee dog whoopings, you know, <laughs> as as always. And Rob and Jimmy they talked about the damage tornadoes do, and that the superstars better be looking across the ring come next Friday because the tornado was going to be arriving. Uh, and then I ended up said it was going to be a wild night in Jel High Park, which it was going to be, uh, you know. And at the little building, we hoped the weather was going to be good because there's no way the little building's going to hold this crowd that the amphitheater might be able to do it. So after all the matches had ended, uh, and I was going to be the last one to leave the ring, I told him, and I'm going to be wearing the Southeastern Championship belt. When the show was all over that day, I got a laugh and a lecture from Les. When he, After it was all over, he showed up in the control room, and he lectured me about, oh, man, don't do that to me, you know, and then he finally had a laugh about it. Well, I guess you got me, Ron, you know. And that little uh, thing between me and Les, that's going to continue for years with Southeastern.
0: Man, I don't see how you build a crowd up any more than that for the following Friday night show. So how did that Friday night show turn out?
1: Well, the crowd, uh, it was the biggest so far for Southeastern and Chihuahua Park. Uh, We did uh, 5,000 fans for the first time. Luckily, we were in the amphitheater. It was at least 1,000 more than could have gotten into the small building. But the amphitheater still wasn't full. I love that. There were still seats up there. So uh, Mike Stallings, uh, what happened uh, as a result of that card is Stallings won that first match against uh, Myatt. Tor Tanaka beat Ron Wright. This time he beat him. I'm sure he made Homer a little happier. Malone beat Austin in the 20 minutes that it took to get his hands on Homer, but he lost to Homer. (laughs) We'll talk about that maybe some next week, how that went down. Uh, Robert and Jimmy lost to the Superstars, But they wanted to get the championship match bad enough that they're going to come back the next week. They're going to put up both their hairs. They're going to shave their heads if they lose. And if they win, they win the belts. And I, in my match, won the Southeastern Championship for non-Carson. It was my first time to ever be Southeastern champion. The Gross Gate, 5,000 people. Pretty big night, thirteen thousand, about thirteen thousand gross. Average payoff was about two seventy-five per man. Uh, attendance for the week was up throughout the entire southeastern territory by a thousand fans or so. Around thirteen thousand fans that week. The boys made an average of about eight hundred dollars for the week. I looked that up, and that equates to three thousand six hundred dollars in today's money. Not a bad week for those
0: boys, you know, and a, Obviously, I had a happy crew. I wish I was on that crew, too. All right, Ron, that is another incredible story. It is about time to sit under that learning tree. So what is the question today on the learning tree, Ron? Okay, uh,
1: today's learning tree question uh, came from Aaron Gartland, and this is what he wrote. My question is about enhancement talent, those young guys that worked for you as unknowns and became stars. How did you find them? How did you train them? How did you hire them? And and how did you keep them? So many of them that contributed to your success. Uh, Why did some of them reach stardom and others didn't? And uh, what are some of the names of the most famous ones? It's a great question. It's actually not just one question. It's great questions. There's a series of questions there. So in order to do this, I think I'm going to start off with answering one at a time if I can. I think his first question was, how did I find enhancement talent? And the enhancement talent is any young guys that uh, they're just getting started, basically, uh, and uh, they're not not going to be winners and they're not going to be big-time wrestlers yet, uh, but they've got potential. Uh, some, of them, some of them don't. And to uh, answer his question, you know, where did I find them at? Uh, I didn't. I, I didn't even look for them. You know, um, my first focus was always on filling my company with with existing wrestlers, great wrestlers that had good reputation and and guys that I had wrestled personally and I knew personally that I knew could do it. I wasn't out there trying to find guys that didn't know how to do it. I was out there looking for guys that knew how to do it. And I tried to fill my cards with the very best wrestlers that I could find. The only time I used those type of guys, let's call them enhancement talent, was to do jobs, uh, to get beat on TV by some of these great wrestlers that I had. That's how most wrestlers got their start, though, was doing jobs on TV, oddly enough. If you don't have a name in wrestling, you you weren't born into a wrestling family. It's hard to get to be a top guy. So that being the way they got started, most guys were happy to wrestle on TV. So let's take a look at how new guys wanting to become wrestlers got that opportunity uh, since he brought this up. Only today, the companies, you know, once you think about it, uh, go looking for professional wrestlers. My last Super Studcast with uh, Jerry Briscoe about him and his brother is a prime example. He works for WWE still, and he's a talent scout for him. He talent he scouts amateur college-level wrestlers that are great athletes, you know. But uh, back in those days, the, the days uh, that I was running business, in my grandfathers, and my father's time and in my day, we didn't look for professional wrestlers. They came and found us. It was a type of profession that wrestling attracted big athletes, guys that wanted fame and wanted to make some good money. And uh, Unless you grew up in that wrestling family, uh, you had to find a wrestler that was willing to train you. That was just the fact. It was the way the business was. There were no professional wrestling facilities anywhere. There weren't any companies running around looking for you. To make a wrestler out of you, that was just unheard of. Individual wrestlers, they made the decision to who they wanted to train. That's where guys learned to wrestle. They had to go and meet wrestlers and talk to them and, and then convince them that I really can do it and I want to do it. Most wrestlers never committed to train anybody. I never trained anybody in my entire career. So anybody that got a wrestler to do that for them were lucky. Uh, you know, If they found some guy that was willing to train them, they were extremely lucky, and uh, and wrestlers were accustomed to being approached. I mean, guys came to you all the time and said, "Hey, I'd like to be a wrestler, and you know, how would I go about it?" Well, you, you said you got to find somebody to train you, kid. Uh, so you know, 'cause I'm not going to spend the time. So so it was very hard to teach someone how to do what wrestlers did. It it, it was a very difficult professional sport. All wrestlers uh, they were nice enough take that responsibility on a training, the guy they never told the student for months and, and sometimes years what it was all about. So during those extremely painful training sessions, and they were painful by golly, the student usually got hurt and he quite often got hurt. And most of the time he got hurt on purpose. It was the way you train guys. You know, you hurt them on purpose. If you didn't, you weren't training them properly. So my grandfather, just as an example for people out there, that the first workout he ever had with the original Dutch Mantell, Dutch Mantell broke his wrist on purpose. Wow. And then he healed. He went away for months. He didn't come back for months until his wrist healed. And when he went back, Mantell worked out with him again and broke his ribs the second <laughs> time. <laughs> you know, it was like he didn't want to train him. He didn't want to do it, you know, but my grandfather wanted it. And he just kept coming back. So uh, some guys, let's take Terry Bolea, the Hulk Hogan. A hero Matsuda broke his leg first wow. working, He didn't want to train him. You know, they didn't want to get rid of him. So my father used to do worse. I mean, he treated them unmercifully. I watched a few of them who were guys that wanted to try to learn. And and uh, sometimes after he would stretch them unmercifully, I mean, he would just, oh, they would scream and holler. He would bust their eyes hard way. Uh, You know, and if a guy like that comes back, he wants it. And you had to test their desire to be a professional wrestler. And that's the way old man explained it to me. Uh, If they don't want it enough, I'm not going to waste my time doing it, you know. So it it was difficult to become a wrestler. And then you had to pay the price. And that's the way it was done back in the day. You had to shoot. You had to learn how to really wrestle. And you had to spend hours in the ring. Before you ever got a chance to work to go in the ring and do what wrestlers do, uh, yeah. the best trainers are, were the guys that knew a whole lot about real wrestling, you know, and, and and they taught their students a lot of wrestling. And every time they showed them a hole, they made them feel the pain of it. And uh, the best qualified students, the guys that are, that went through this agonizing process, they usually turned out to be the best workers. And you never smarten them up. And that's what we call it. Uh, And that's what everybody out there today uh, knows about it. Uh, You never smarten them up until they paid the price and they earned the right to be a wrestler. So to basically answer the first question, uh, where'd I find them? uh, That's pretty easy. I didn't find them. And I didn't even look for, you know, as a promoter, they found me after adequate training and better still after uh, an introduction from their trainer who I might've known personally, or I certainly had heard of him. I never in all my career ever put a wrestler in my ring that I didn't know whether he could wrestle or not. Right. You you were stupid. Stupid to put an unknown guy in your ring. And then he might hurt your town and kill your business. Uh, you couldn't afford to do it. So the second question was about how I trained him. Well, obviously, I didn't personally train any of them. Most came to me trained. To be honest with you, they showed up trained already. I already had one of the best post-training programs in the world, (laughs) and that was my territory. My God, uh, if they were lucky enough to get a shot, I put those young guys in the ring with some of the greatest wrestlers on earth. I had tremendous talent, and uh, wrestling every night was the best and the most surefire way for a young guy to become great, to become a star. And you had to wrestle every night, and you had to wrestle great wrestlers. And I was lucky enough to be surrounded by a lot of great wrestlers. So the next question was more important to me. How did I decide to hire them? Now, this one was really something I I put a little thought into. Uh, uh, This decision uh, was based on many things, uh, how to hire them and who to hire. I always looked at their overall ability in the ring first. You know, I-, I wanted to see how they moved in the ring. It was extremely important. I wanted to see how much wrestling they knew. That was important to me. Now it might not have been important to a lot of other companies, but for me it was. And I think that's because I came from Florida, where the snake pit was, and wrestling and shooting. It, it had a lot to do with success. And so, you know, that to me, I wanted to know that they really had wrestling skills. Uh, I looked at their body and, and, and just the the look that they had and the expressions that they had. They were important to me. Uh, uh, did they have charisma? I used to ask myself. And, you know, charisma just you can't put a finger on what charisma is. It's kind of like it, they had did they have something that made them different and stand out from other people, something that drew you to them. Could they talk? Could the interview? Extremely important. Did they have the ability to blend in with others in, in a crew and become part of that crew? That was important. You know, I a mean, guy could have all these skills, but if he couldn't easily gel in and, and become part of your crew and he was going to be a problem, uh, you didn't want him. So, you know, that was important to me. What was their attitude toward uh, winning and losing? I mean, the sport was based on, you know... You, You won and you lost. You did what you were told. And were these the type of guys that I, if I'm going to hire them, that's going to pretty much do whatever I ask them to do? How much effort did they put forth in the ring? So none of them ever got that chance until they proved to me they had the desire to be special. I spent a lot of time with guys before I hired them, uh, taking all these things into account and uh you know, and the guys that really wanted it didn't mind telling you. Uh, one, I'm just going to mention one off the top of my head is Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson made it clear from day one that this is what I want. And it's just what I'm going to do. And and I'm going to get there. You know, no one's going to stop me. I mean, he had that burning desire to be good. And that's what I wanted in my company. I always wanted the best wrestlers I could get. And especially these young guys. So. When they depressed me enough, I hired them full time. I mean, that's that's how and that's what I looked for before I hired them. And there were many of them that had their very first matches for me on TV doing jobs for somebody. Arn Anderson's an example. Some went on not just to be hired full time, but to become main eventers in some of the biggest companies in the world. When I finish these questions, I'm going to list some of those guys, as a matter of fact. So the next question that he asked was about. How did I keep so many of these young guys that contributed to my company's success? I I tried to treat them with respect first. They had to work hard to get there. Then I was respectful to every wrestler. I didn't care how young he was or how good he was or what his name was. They all earned that respect. I paid him properly. I paid him as good as I could. And I had a pretty good reputation for it. I gave uh, wrestlers the chance to be a part of a successful operation. That was very, very important for a lot of guys, old-timers. They wanted to be not just in your territory, but they wanted to be in a territory that's rocking, a territory that's making money, a territory that's doing good. I gave these young guys the opportunity to enjoy themselves in a territory that almost always had very little pressure and no conflict. And that was so important from having wrestled in other places in the world and go into dressing rooms and, and feel the pressure of what you've got to do in the ring and to have guys bickering with each other and sometimes just outright fights in the dressing room. That I did not want, nor did I ever have in my territories. So uh, most importantly, and I think this is the most important thing I did for him, is I let him go when they had an opportunity to go somewhere else and to make more money or to become an even bigger star, I let them go. I I felt it was important for every guy, every one of these young guys that's going to be stars to reach his full potential, to get there. And if I kept him there, I might be holding him back from getting there. I never tried to hold a roster back, none of them. And then never tried to make them feel guilty for wanting to go to make a bigger name for themselves. I felt it was part of being an owner and part of being a booker in wrestling to develop talent for not just me, but for everyone in the business to improve not just my business, but to improve the wrestling business, period. And the last question was, why did some of them reach stardom and others didn't? I didn't have anything to do with that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) That's based upon them, right? I mean, that's based upon each of their goals. And just how far each one of these guys wanted to go, you know, and in the basic Tennessee stud language, you know, I led the studs to water, but I couldn't make <laughs> them drink. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I could, I could take them to the, to the trough, but I couldn't make them drink, you know, and that yeah. was up to them, whether they wanted to drink or not, whether they wanted to make it or not, whether they wanted to be stars or not, I couldn't give that to them, you know? Right. So I guess the last thing Mr. Garland asked was the, To name some of the guys that had worked for me in their early years that that went on to fame. And I've put some time thinking about this, and and I got to start by apologizing to anybody that I leave off this list, you know, because uh, luckily I had some hand in a great number of guys that became stars. Also, I got to tell you that this list is not put in any particular order by who I think is the best or the worst or whatever. So I'm going to try to do this, starting with my first territory, Southeastern and Knoxville in 1974, and ending with my last USA Championship Wrestling in 1988, over a 14-year period of time. These are some of the guys that I feel I had some hand in, and then I think they would probably say, yeah, Ron had some responsibility. A lot of them actually have, have told me that. Dutch Mantell is one. Uh, Dennis Conry of the Midnight Express, Dr. D, David Schultz, who slapped around a reporter and became famous for it, Sylvester Ritter, the junkyard dog, uh, started with me, and uh, I I realized his talent, and and I sent him to Bill Watts in Mid-South Wrestling because I thought he had a, a future that I couldn't give him living in the part of the country where I was. But I knew he was going to find it in New Orleans and in Louisiana. Terry Bolia, Paul Hogan. Never heard of him. Yeah,
0: Dead, <laughs> you know, what I mean, uh, yeah,
1: uh, who basically came to me when nobody wanted him. He could not go anywhere. They were yeah. breaking his leg. Uh, they they didn't want to train him, they didn't want to give him a shot, and I gave him a shot. Uh, Wayne Ferris, the honky tonk man, uh, same type of situation, started with me. And uh, another one, Ed Leslie, Buddhist. The Barber Beefcake yeah, came to me uh, real young. Nobody wanted him. Friend of Hulk Hogan, Terry. And uh, everybody knows basically where a lot of these guys ended up. Jerry Stubbs, uh, Mr. Olympia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don Kernoodle came to me in Knoxville. Young guy. Wanted to go someplace. Went to the Carolinas and became a monster star with Sergeant Slaughter and uh, made history there. Arne Anderson, I already mentioned him uh, started for me as a job boy on TV and, and went right straight to the top and came and talked to me about, uh, leaving and then tears in his eyes, didn't want to go. And, uh, you know, but, uh, he and I both knew that this is the shot darn, this will make you the monster that you can be. And, and, uh, I let him go, you know, because it, it was good for him. Jeff Van camp, Lord humongous young guy at opportunity. Uh, to go into a role for me that I didn't know whether it would ever get over or not turned out to be one of the great deals of all time, uh, one of the great gimmicks of all time. And uh, and uh, the last one in uh, USA Wrestling was a guy named Doug Furness, who was a, just a phenomenal athlete uh, out of the University of Tennessee, a football player with phenomenal strength and some phenomenal ability and uh, went on to become – not just a star in America, but a Japanese superstar. Then you know, I feel like I made a, a small contribution to most of these guys' career, and uh, just, uh, I just I appreciate the opportunity to to work with
0: those kind of people. I think you're uh, taking that very humbly. These are some huge names in the sport, as we've all heard, and. Anyway, that is just absolutely awesome. Another great show today, stud. Absolutely. Just a fantastic show. Congratulations.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to have some good ones uh, upcoming, too. Just going to keep better, getting better.
0: Absolutely. We believe that. You can find the stud on Facebook. You can become friends with Ron by simply liking his Facebook page at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. You can find him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Don't forget to check out the three-hour-plus Super Studcast number 27, all about the Briscoe Brothers at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It is the best deal in wrestling for only $2.99. So where are we headed to next week, Ron? Well, we're going to talk about one of the most unusual matches I ever came
1: up with. I didn't do it many times. It's going to happen in the next program. It's a two-out-of-three fall match, okay? Okay. The first fall is amateur rules. The second fall is a no DQ rule, and anything goes. And whoever wins the quickest of those two falls gets to pick the type of match they want in the third fall. So, I mean, and this is going to be between Don Carson and uh, Dick Steinborn. Quite an event. Uh, it was pretty remarkable to watch this thing in in action. And uh, we're going to cover everything that happened the week of April ninth, nineteen seventy six. And uh, we're going to close out with another great learning tree. Uh, I've already picked the subject again, and this one is uh, where do bookers get their inspiration for storylines and how far out do they plan their angles? Uh, I think it's a fascinating subject for people that uh, want to know about booking. And before we go today, uh, Dave, I can't help but to thank, obviously, my loyal listeners out there for their continued support. And under these trying times uh, that we're all living through today, uh, may God bless us all.
0: Absolutely. Let's all stay safe. And again, our best wishes to Jeff Baldwin. We hope he gets well soon and is back very soon to this studcast. This is David Summers. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcasting Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week so full nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the tennessee stud this is david summers saying so long from the great smoky mountains